Welcome to Veggie Takes. I'm Kendall Vanderslice. And I'm Kate Watson. And we're here to answer your questions. Kate, I've got a question for you. What exactly are we doing here? Great question. We're here to rewatch our 10 favorite Veggie Tales episodes through the eyes of food scholars, theologians, and modern day parents. Some silliness and nostalgia mixed together with academic critique? Exactly. What I really want to know is whether VeggieTales was an innovative and creative tool for sharing Bible stories with children, or was the anthropomorphic transfiguration of prophets into produce a bit too irreverent? Stick with us as we recap Josh and the Big Wall to find out. Today's episode begins when Bob takes Junior Asparagus to the desert, in his imagination, of course, to share the story of the Israelites. They'd been wandering for 40 years, waiting for God to bring them to the promised land. They'd failed to obey God when they first arrived, so God made them wander for a while. The day arrives when it's time for them to return, only now the land is surrounded by a giant wall. The residents of the town stand atop the wall and throw slushies at the Israelites until they retreat. At the campfire that night, they reminisce their years in captivity and debate how to build a weapon that can overtake the town. While the vegetables argue, Joshua, played by Larry, goes to pray. He meets a messenger of the Lord who tells Joshua that the Israelites need to march around the wall every day for seven days. On the seventh day, they need to blow their horns and the wall will come crumbling down. Joshua relays this information to his vegetable army and they are a bit skeptical. The first day of the march, they get pummeled with slushies. Just when they are about to give up, Junior interjects and reminds them of all the times God has provided in the most ridiculous situations. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make any sense, he tells them, like walking around the city to make the walls fall down. The veggies return for six days, the cups of slushy being exchanged for hoses and ultimately a dump truck of the slush. Honestly, it probably felt pretty good to have frozen slush marching in the desert, but Whatever. (laughs) Finally, on the seventh day, the wall comes tumbling down and the Israelites take over the land. All right, Kendall, what did you think of this story? Well, okay, I think we should start with the good pieces of the story. Um, First off, this episode has, I think, some of the VeggieTales like sleeper hits. The ones that I forgot existed or maybe just sort of forgot were VeggieTales. And then as soon as they played, I was like, oh, man, this brings me back. Um, so the first is the Promised Land song. The, like, we're going to the Promised Land. I'm not going to sing it because I'm not a singer. But um, <laughs> as, as soon as, like, the first couple beats came on, I was like, oh, my goodness, I remember this song. Um, but then also it has that keep walking, the, like, keep walking, bet you won't knock down our wall, which I have sung that song many times to Strudel, my dog, <laughs> on walks. Because he's a beagle, and so he has to smell everything. And so walks go incredibly slowly because he just has to keep (laughs) sniffing. Um, And so, yeah, I sing that song to him a lot when I want him to keep walking. So it was fun to sort of, like, encounter those (laughs) again. Um, Which, yeah, man, such good parts of this episode that I forgot were parts of this episode. You know what? I like the way you're calling it the sleeper hits of Veggie Tales (laughs) because I felt the exact same way. I heard these songs. I actually... I think I associated that we're going to the promised land. I think I associated that with maybe a Sunday school little ditty. Like oh, I interesting. 
didn't realize that it was from a veggie tale. And I think that I have seen this episode fewer times than some of the other episodes we've watched. I don't think we ever had this one on VHS or DVD in my church or in my family. So I actually have to say, I think this was just like my second or third rewatch. Um, but the songs are still total earworms. Like I still had that recognition. Totally, totally. I also, I think like I can never hear the phrase milk and honey without the like, the like, what's the, I don't know the right word, almost like the lyrical sort of sway that they say it, the like, the land flowing with milk and honey. And the guy goes, sounds sticky. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I realize now that always comes to mind whenever I hear the phrase milk and honey, but I never really connected it with Veggie Tales. Yeah, like you weren't making the association. No, I guess that means it's just so deep in my subconscious that I've just always inherently tied the two together. More formative than you even knew. (laughs) I guess so. So yeah, I guess my what for me was hard about this episode really has less to do with VeggieTales itself and has more to do with the story. Um, I don't know how to reckon with a story about like land ownership that requires displacing someone else. Um, I think, you know, we of course grew up reading, or I at least grew up reading scripture, always sort of reading, of course, as the Israelites as God's chosen people and never really questioning what it meant for like it to be God's will that they displace a whole town in order to have this land. Um, And I don't know, I have a much harder time with that story now and, and wondering like, should we so easily just sort of be in the mind of the Israelites and just overlook the people who were displaced or I don't know, for me, like this is a hard Bible story. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. But I, I do think that actually this is an example of VeggieTales in a way at its finest, because I think that what they do is that in this episode, um, the absurdity of God's plan versus the Israelites' plan is really emphasized. Um, like when we have, you know, the Israelites' vegetables are here creating this like massive weapon that can tear down a whole wall. And God's like, actually, no, you're just going to march around it seven times. I think we can read that in scripture and it doesn't seem quite as absurd. But like when we have taken things out of sort of this human sphere (laughs) into this like already absurd vegetable sphere, then I think we're able to see a little bit more clearly just how crazy it is that the Israelites are supposed to just walk around a wall and it's going to fall down. So In a way, I think that that is helpful because um, it shows that, like, God wasn't giving them a battle plan. (laughs) Like, walking around a wall seven times isn't a battle plan. It's, like, reliance on God to do what God's going to do. But I'll be honest, I question God doing what God's doing here. So, I don't know. That's what's hard for me. Well, something that stuck out to me here was, as I was thinking about when we talked talked about Dave and the giant pickle, I was struck by how we've now have this like veggie tale shorthand of tropes, right? Like we see the um, Philistine 
French peas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Are now um, now they're in Jericho, and we also see it looked like a family of giant pickles, except they are dressed. One is like wearing a diaper, another one's wearing lipstick. They're sort of like reclining, and they're sort of like the other, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. the Israelites. We understand right away that this is the other culture that the Israelites have come to displace. However, I appreciated how. The Israelites aren't necessarily any less silly or any better equipped to be the people who have the city. Um, And I'd never thought about before this story, the way God's plan isn't doesn't involve violence. Like there's no violence suggested here. It's just God saying in a way as humans, we could see it even as sort of arbitrary. You have this city now. You have possession of this now. Um, Not necessarily like you go kill these people now or you go violently, you know, dispossess these people. Of course, in actuality, we know that it wasn't necessarily this peaceful transfer of power. And I'm sure there's tragedy, doom, sadness, wailing as this displacement actually happened. But um, I don't know. I, I, I happen to agree with you that I think taking a step back and just making it so silly to the point of absurdity is probably if you're telling the story to children, a good way to do it. What did you think about the way that the Cebu song kind of came like early in the episode? I was like, oh, <laughs> the Cebu song is in this? I, I completely, I was like, actually, I think that, I don't know if I've said before that the Cebu song is my favorite or if I've said that something else is my favorite. The Cebu song is definitely my favorite. It is so <laughs> weird. It is so wacky. <laughs> makes no sense at all it drew my children who were across my lawn like running over what is that are you watching veggie tales what is this one i don't get it and i was like ah you're not supposed to get it it's so surrealist and strange um but but it appears like maybe 10 minutes into the episode so that like the meat of the actual the way they structured the episode is a little bit different so that for the last 20 minutes, it is straight Bible study uh, story narrative. Yeah, I was surprised that it came so early. Once it came on, I was like, wait, are we already at that point in the episode? Yeah, um, like, what time is it? Yeah, I know. So that that was surprising. It was like they basically just introduced the episode and then um, and then went right into the silly song. I, man, when I was watching this silly song, I watched it a couple times because, again, these are the songs that are like stuck in my mind more than I realized. Um and I resonated a lot with the professor in this one. And I was like, man, do I resonate with the professor in all of these? And this is just where I like really see it the most. But when he like, he jumps in and he is both like really into the story and concerned with figuring out what happens next but also deeply concerned by all of the things that don't make sense and all of the loose threads. And like, he just wants Larry to clarify, you know, what happens. Well, you know what, though? I realized that this silly song actually has a lot in common with the episode because it is a narrator who just really wants to understand what is this? Why doesn't it make sense to me? I want it to be told to me in a way that grounds reality just kind of like how the Israelites and Joshua are in this tension of we want God's plan to reflect what makes sense in our own minds. Um, and I actually, I've never seen a any sort of telling aimed at children that says like, you know, sometimes what God asks us to do 
it doesn't feel good. It doesn't resonate with what we see as real. And sometimes it just is what it is. But at the same time, I don't feel like it's dismissive. Like it's not dismissive of that desire to want things to make sense. Yeah, that's interesting. What did you think about um, the framing of this story? Like the question asked of the child at the beginning of the episode is why like God would want them to, I think it's like to be friends with or forgive someone that they don't want to be friends with or something. Um, And I found a, a really interesting juxtaposition that like, Well, first off, the framing of the Jericho story, like the takeaway is sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense. But then I found it even more interesting that the takeaway of that was God might ask you to befriend someone that you don't necessarily want to befriend. And it's almost an ironic, like subversion of what's actually happening in the story of Jericho, where they're displacing people in a way that doesn't yes, make sense. Totally. God might ask you to steal people's stuff. We right. don't want to steal their stuff. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. But one thing that I did find really interesting that again, I think maybe this was Veggie Tales like taking a story that's a hard story and sort of flipping it on its head. Um, was the scene where Larry meets the messenger of the Lord. And so the messenger walks up and Larry says, oh, are you... totally forgot about that, by the way. Yes. I was like, what? Oh my goodness. Yes. But he like, he comes up um, and Larry says, are you, I don't remember if he said, are you an enemy of or a friend of, but like, oh no, no, are you, are you for us or for our enemy? And he yeah, says, that's exactly what neither, he said. I'm a messenger of the Lord. Um, and I thought that was, again, a really powerful move that he's not actually identifying with the Israelites. He's not saying I'm for or against either of you. Um, I am here on behalf of the Lord, and this is what the Lord has said. And so, yeah, I, I found that to be really interesting, too. It was another opportunity, again, to separate sort of um, basically to say, like, this story is about what God is doing. And like it didn't get into the weeds of um, almost like separating the Israelites and the other. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like it didn't have this. It didn't feel like good guys versus bad guys to me. No, it didn't. It didn't. And And even the the fact that like. The story's hard is the good guys versus bad guys thing, right? Because we're seeing it from the Israelites perspective. Right, right. And and really kind of they could come across as the bad guys here because they're trying to take this land. And it's totally understandable that people are throwing slushies as a way to try and, you know, defend themselves. You're allowed to throw slushies to defend what's yours. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Is that the takeaway that your children gleaned from this? <laughs> are we going to be cleaning up a pink sticky mess in the coming days? Not going to be any slushies welcomed into my home in the coming days. But yet again, I think the big takeaway from my kids was the... Um, the Cebu song, they became bored by the Joshua narrative and wandered away to clean their gecko cage, which is like <laughs> not even a chore that they enjoy. So. <laughs> the gecko cage went out over Jericho. Wow. Yeah, they picked they picked feeding crickets to geckos over Jericho. But um, I don't know. I, I have to agree with you that I think even though this wasn't the most entertaining, like I wasn't like riveted by the way that the story unfolded, I did feel like they brought together all their VeggieTales shorthand, all their VeggieTales characters that we've come to like really associate with different um, like archetypes. And then they use it to tell the story in a way that didn't, I don't know. I felt like they weren't ignoring the fact that a city was stolen and they weren't ignoring the fact that, like you said, this is a hard story to really understand. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I really do think that this is Summer Veggie Tales at its finest when it comes to sort of what I think is their end goal, which is teaching stories, Bible stories, especially complicated Bible stories to kids in a really interesting, creative way. Yeah. And yet again, like the story in the beginning about, you know, dealing with a person that you didn't want to deal with, that's not the angle I would think of to get into this story. Like, I really, um, the way that they came up with introductions to the stories and the, the framing of the stories, I can't get over how surprising they are every single week. Yeah, they really are. And at first I thought like, this is just sort of weird, but more and more I'm starting to think maybe this is strategic and it's really trying to figure out like a concern that is very practical to children and then how they might look to scripture to address that concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they did have in mind when we spoke to Erin, she was talking about VeggieTales as sort of like this vehicle, right? Like not necessarily the destination. It's like the car you hop into to start the conversation, to start the journey. And I felt like this episode was particularly good for that and probably maybe not a great like kickback on a Saturday, replace your Saturday morning cartoons, but probably a really good tool for like a Sunday school lesson after you're telling the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is this the only time we see Moses in the Veggie Tales? It's definitely the first time since Ooh, we've been watching. Good question. Is there one that is the Moses story? For some reason, I feel like I can envision Miriam, like an asparagus Miriam. But <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be picturing Esther. Or and... your brain is just turned to vegetables. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe I can only see every story as vegetables now. But... <laughs> I don't remember there being a Moses one, but for some reason, I feel like I can envision it. Yeah, I don't know. I laughed when I saw when I saw that um, he looked that he was a giant pickle, just like Goliath. I was like, huh. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That, because usually it is the pickle or the zucchini is the bad guy, like mm-hmm. the Goliath. But then also when we get ahead to Rakshak and Benny and think about um, Nebuchadnezzar, like, yeah. That was just had so many characters. They just ran out of guys. They're I like, we got to so. so. start repeating. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for Silly Songs with Adam, the part of the show where worship and CCM scholar Adam Perez comes on to break down a silly song. I'm here this week to talk about the Song of the Cebu, a song I mentioned on at least one previous episode. Now, apologies that there may be some confusion in the narrative arc of the Silly Song segment as we've been presenting them here out of timeline order. Remember that the inclusion of Mr. Lunt's song about his love for cheeseburgers was due to the challenges Archibald Asparagus perceived with some of the finer details and presentation of the Song of the Cebu. From behind his projector, Larry presents a slideshow to his audience consisting of Junior, Jimmy, and Jerry as he attempts to tell a story about a boy who owns three Cebus and a hippo. However, things start to go awry when Larry's vacation pictures get mixed in and lead to multiple interruptions by Archibald with questions and criticism about the song. An important follow-up to our earlier discussion of the question of the water buffalo Cebu relationship and the plausibility of a VeggieTales multiverse, it's important to note here that there's also a species of domesticated cattle from the Indian subcontinent called the Zebu that have humps on their backs and horns, like the Cebu in the Silly Song. So it is a real thing, in case you didn't know. Musically, it consists mostly 
of a Latin rhythm section, perhaps also calypso in style. You'll recognize the sounds of bongos, a kick drum, hi-hat, timbales, and a bass, and occasionally some synthesized instruments that come in and mirror the song's major melodic motif on the syllables, say, boo, and then the instruments continue to mirror the melody as the story develops using a call and response form. The form really extends the length of the song that otherwise lacks much content at all. Now it's important also to note that the name Song of the Cebu is perhaps a misnomer as there are three Cebu in the story. The lyrics of the song are a bit lacking when compared to, say, the immersive narrative world of Mr. Lund's cheeseburger song. We get snippets here about the boy who appears to be a young Larry with hat and poncho and his three Cebu, a sick Cebu, a sad Cebu, and a mute Cebu. Why those three attributes in particular is anyone's guess. Pretty much all we know about the story is that the three Cebu are rowing with the young Larry boy in a boat and are spooked by a nearby hippopotamus. Then of course Archibald interrupts in his discontent, wanting the story to be told more like a Tolkien novel where the size, shape, and color of every blade of grass is detailed for the reader. Archibald's interruption accompanies Larry's own, dis own derailment with unrelated photographs from his vacations, and the Song of the Cebu sort of fizzles out. That's it. This is no Song of Fire and Ice saga, just a little snapshot of a story. To put it in agricultural terms, it's the seed of something, not really full grown. Now, if there's one thing we learn from this silly song, other than the fact that Larry's storytelling skills are perhaps not um, top shelf, I think it's that no one likes a bait and switch when it comes to seeing someone else's vacation pictures. In the era of Instagram and Facebook, it's wild to remember that people used to invite others over to their homes just to show them pictures of their travels, sometimes with a slide projector. Archibald remembers, and Archibald was having none of it. Don't be like Larry, friends. Let people look through photos at their leisure, on their own terms, and on their own time. If nothing else, this is the gift of social media. Thanks, Larry, for reminding us of just how good we have it. This has been Silly Songs with Adam, the part of the show where Adam comes on and breaks down a silly song. Our guest today is Dr. Alberto La Rosa Rojas. Alberto is a brand new faculty member at Western Seminary. Congratulations, Alberto. He studies theology and ethics with a particular focus on theologies of migration and home. Naturally, he is the first person I thought of when wondering how to process this story. Welcome, Alberto. We are so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, well, so our first question that we ask all of our guests is, when or how were you first introduced to VeggieTales? Ah, well, uh, I'm actually I'm originally from Peru, from the port city of Callao in Peru. Um, and so VeggieTales wasn't very big when I was... <laughs> Up in Peru from one to 10 years old. But when I was 10, my family migrated here to the United States. And um, one of the first churches that we joined, where I would spend most of my youth, uh, was a church in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is an evangelical non denom. Um, and of course, there was Awana. Uh, and we would watch um, Veggie Tales in Awana. But I have to say, um, although I encountered it a few times when I was a, a child or, or between 10 and 14, I think I actually 
dealt with it more as an Awana teacher when I was like in high school or even oh, interesting. college. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where I most, most exposed to uh, VeggieTales. <laughs> Do you have a favorite VeggieTales movie or song that you remember? Uh, I mean, the one that frequently just kind of is playing in the back of my head is We Are the Pirates Who Don't Do Anything. So yes that one hasn't come up on any of our episodes yet we had like i don't even know what what episode it's on yeah i don't know either i just have that little refrain like we are the pirates oh it's a great one (laughs) so when you were watching this episode obviously your work as an academic would probably give you a lot of different ideas about how to process the story, especially as we're sort of wrestling through the concept of God supposedly ordaining a displacement of a whole people group. And earlier, Kendall and I were talking about how this is a lighthearted and absurd take on what is kind of at its heart a hard Bible story. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Uh... We like to open up with really nice light, you know, <laughs> topics of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, uh, this story is set within a larger sort of narrative about the conquest of Canaan, what is popularly known as the conquest of Canaan, which is perhaps, if not one of the, then the most difficult biblical text, because embedded in it is all sorts of things, not only sort of violence, but also um, genocide, um, infanticide, uh, so all sorts of uh, really horrible terrible moral questions um, are embedded into this narrative. Uh, now, the VeggieTales episode focuses in, focuses in on, the, on the Battle of Jericho, um, and as we know, and the walls came tumbling down. Um, and so, you know, some of the broader questions are, are or some of the more horrific things are sort of left out. And what's interesting about this story, the Jericho story, um, and, and VeggieTales picks up on this, right, is it's that um, they didn't fight right away. They didn't sort of storm in with swords and spears um, and just decimate uh, because in the story, in the narrative, uh, Israel's the little guy and they're faced with this uh, city full of giants um, that they're super afraid of. And, um, and they just walk around the city seven times and play the trumpets. And it is God who sort of fights for the little guy. Um, but it does raise the question, nonetheless, uh, Kate, of um, would, why would God do that? Why would God just displace um, these this people from Jericho, the, the, all the people that were inhabiting in, in Canaan? Um, and uh, well, there are a few ways of, uh, let's say, a few lenses that we can use to think through this story, right? Um, let's say the first lens is a sort of historical lens. And that's the question uh, that, did this really happen? Did a group of Israelites uh, mixed with a bunch of other Semitic people, because even we even read in the Bible, it wasn't just uh, descendants of Abraham who were in that uh, community that left from Egypt in the Exodus, but it was also all sorts of other enslaved peoples that were in Egypt that, that went out in that caravan. So already kind of a mixed group, um, sort of already changing up some of those questions of like ethnic cleansing and, and genocide. Uh, but uh, did this really happen? Did a, did a group of wandering um, previous enslaved people 
uh, managed to uh, conquer this vast Canaanite territory, which uh, had established kingdoms and rulers and armies. Um, and something that could only have been done, as, as the narrative says, with God's help. Because um, obviously these, these previously enslaved peoples didn't have the military background or all the military uh, supplies and resources to perform this kind of conquest. Um, and so the historical record, if we look at it, is a little bit ambiguous on this. Um, for a while, the thesis was, no, this didn't really happen that way. It's more likely that um, the groups that became Israel and the, and the tribes of Israel already had ancestors in the land of Canaan and that these ancestors confederated uh, maybe a bunch of the smaller tribes and kind of rose up against the bigger tribes or maybe even against Egyptian sort of control in the area. And it was much more of a revolution, right? An uprising from below than a conquest. But that thesis has been challenged. And again, it's so hard to speculate about something that happened thousands of, or that might have happened thousands of years ago. Um, and there are some evidence that, for instance, that the city of Jericho was raised sometime in the 13th century BC. But again, it's, it's, it's a bit speculative. And that won't necessarily satisfy our questions as Christians, right? So, okay, it did or didn't happen, but we have this book with this story in the Bible, and it's an authoritative text for us, what do we do with it? What kind of God do we find in this story? And what kind of people is this God calling us out to be, right? Um, and okay, so we leave the historical lens behind for a second, and we focus on the narrative itself. And so we already talked about a little bit of how VeggieTales picks up on the fact that this is kind of a spiritual conquest, right? That, that they prayed and they danced and they sang and they walked around the walls and God brought down the walls for them. It wasn't your typical, you know, uh, which there are other examples of in the Bible um, where, you know, the, the army of Israel has a military strategic play. They come in at night while the other army in, is encamped and sleeping and kill everybody and chase them down. So it wasn't, that wasn't that in this case. Um, yeah, we, we said before you got on, we were like, this is not a battle plan. <laughs> like Walking around seven times is not exactly like a sure, you know, way into conquest. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's a question of um, uh, that Dredgy Tales raises about, uh, are we going to believe that God is going to help us again? You know, help, God helped us with the Red Sea. God helped us with this, the, the rock in the desert, Meribah. You know, is God going to come through again? And should we really rely on our own resources or should we rely on our military experience or lack thereof? Right. Um, so there there's there's the questions of the narrative. The narrative also poses the Canaanites as these kind of like evil people. Well, in the VeggieTales, they're they're they have French accents for some reason. Because um, <laughs> they're French slushies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> French connection there. Uh, and, and they had and then there's just like they had it coming. Right. That's the kind of the, the narrative sort of sets it up that way. In fact, it sets it up that way in, all the way back in Genesis. Right. Because uh, the Lord tells Abraham, you know, your, your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but then I'm going to bring them out of slavery. And by that time, the evil of the people of Canaan will have reached its limit. It will have mm. sort of its full fruition. And, uh, you know, and therefore the conquest will be justified um, because they're an evil people. 
well, as you probably know, Kate, this text has a terrible history of reception being used, uh, particularly, you know, we're here in North America. Um, yeah. It was used to justify the conquest of Native American lands and peoples who were put in the position of the Canaanites, uh, this evil people um, who deserve to have their land taken away from them. Um, even John Locke, you know, the famous philosopher who had a lot of influence in the Constitution, he writes about how um, there's a biblical ground in Genesis for the taking of Native American lands. This is in, in his two treatises on government, um, because the Native Americans have not have misused it. They have not turned all the land into farms. They have not maximized product. Um, and, you know, the, the Christians, the European Christians who are coming, therefore had a divine right to these lands, much like the Israelites had a divine right to the Canaanite lands as those who were obedient to God, as those who could um, actually do with the land what God commands Adam and Eve to do in the land of Eden, to till it and to, to have dominion over it. So those are the first two sort of readings, I would say. Um, and let me just I, go ahead. I feel like you have like already blown my mind here because of the second reading, or because of the ways that like this has been received in the Americas and then used as sort of this defense of like conquesting. It's hard now in wanting to sort of undo that to read back and not see it as the same thing. But then to realize like, oh, wait, no, this isn't a story of the people that had a lot of power taking over the little guys. It's the opposite. Like, this is the story of the people who were small and disempowered taking over the big guys. And I, I think I just, this is blowing my mind. Yeah, there's all these complex lines of thinking. Now, to be fair, I think the colonizers, it was, it was a really hard trip across the Atlantic um, and only few were willing to make it and not the richest necessarily and most privileged, but the sort of uh, the most adventurous who are looking for God, glory and gold. Right. Um, and so they also saw themselves as the little guys because they were hmm. empires um, in, the, in North America, the, the confederation of native tribes, um, the Iroquois, for instance, in South America, the Incan empire, the Aztec empire, and technically the Spanish, the English, they were a, a small group, granted, perhaps with uh, more advanced weapons. Um, but I know there's a larger story there, uh, which we won't get too much into, which has to do with the fact that many, many Native American peoples actually readily offered hospitality and welcomed the conquerors, not knowing that what was coming upon them was a conquest. But we'll leave that to the side for a second. I just want to offer the, the sort of the third lens um, and this, this third lens through which we can read the story of Jericho and, and the conquest and the displacement of the, the, the Canaanite peoples to make room for, um, what does the VeggieTales say, uh, the Israelites, uh, their new home, to make room for their new home that God had promised them. Um, actually, this, this third lens is one you can find in Scripture itself. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, Paul Jr. or pseudo Paul or whatever you want to call him um, or her, who knows? Um, that that um, the ancestors, the forefathers, Abraham and Sarah and, and the Israelites, yes, they were called out of the land and promised a country, a new home. But what does Hebrews say then? But 
their hope was not it just in some home here on earth, but in the heavenly country, in in God's home, in dwelling with God. So it has so the New Testament takes this story and uses it as an allegory for the way in which we live in an age that is coming to pass, uh, the age of exile from Eden, um, and that there's this new age coming, this this eschatological age, right? Now, um, I prefer to use the language of new creation, right? The restoration and the healing of the cosmos to make room for God's second coming in Christ. But that's the way that the New Testament sort of picks up um, the, the, the story of coming away from earth, Abraham, all the way through the inhabiting of the promised land. It, it becomes an allegory for how we're all on the way. We're all on a journey towards this eschatological home, which is not necessarily a different place, but a different time, right? The next age, the age to come, the kingdom of God. So those are, you know, I would say, let's steer maybe towards reading that third, uh, using that third lens to read these stories. Um, but um, one last thing, because I've talked a lot already. Uh, very cool. <laughs> but you're, you're, everything you're saying is so brilliant that I you just want to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> uh, no, I want to hear from, from you all and what you think of the story too. Um, but uh, I just want to say too that this story, yes, inspired the colonizers and has that sort of brutal history of reception interpretation, but it, uh, it also was uh, inspirational to African-Americans um, in the reconstruction period in the great northward migration. So many spirituals, um, about the promised land and this promise of a new home. Um, and it continues to inspire immigrants all around the world. The little guys, right? The, le the least of these, um, when they're forced to leave their homes and look for new land, oftentimes the United States is that land that they're coming to, right? This is a country that receives many immigrants every year. In many, many cases, the immigrants that come are religious. I think I heard like 70% of uh, incoming migrants to the United States adhere to a religion and, and many are Christians. And so these stories, they carry them with, with them. Um, and they also become a source of inspiration about how God is going to carry them through, um, even that God is going to bring down the wall and those walls and allow them to find and make a new home. And so it's complicated. I think we, we move too quickly to say that this is a terrible story about conquest I just think there's a lot going on um, as, as it's received by the people of God today and, and through the ages. And so we do, we do well, I think, to dwell on it and reflect on it rather than sort of put it in a, in a box right away. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think that the writers of VeggieTales did a pretty good job of presenting the story as something complicated, you know, sort of an you know, if you look at it allegorically or if you look at it in terms of this inspirational tale of a new creation that we're all moving our way toward, you know, something that we can't seize by force, but something that we can be given if we obey. Um, something that as, you know, I think it was the gourds who were creating some sort of nuke that they were going to like throw right into Jericho. And then, you know, they shoot that down. I think that they framed this in a way where we can think about it through all three lenses that you mentioned. Um, so I'm just wondering, did you feel like they did a pretty good job or how did you feel watching the retelling? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
you know, there were parts where I winced a little bit. Um, and some of it you have to recognize, you know, when, when do you think this, this video was made? Are we talking 90s here, probably? Yeah, mid-90s, I think. This one is... Was this one maybe 1998? I think this was the 13th episode. Right. Okay. They made those kind of, you know, for better or for worse, before the sort of time of political correctness, right? And we talked about one example of that somehow the Canaanites have become the, the French, which to be fair is better than the Canaanites becoming like Native Americans or yeah, yeah, modern day, yeah. Uh, minoritized groups. But nonetheless, this sort of like, and, and you know, um, when you think you're a child listening to it and all your favorite characters speak with an. <laughs> North American U.S. accent, you know, which you don't think it's an accent. You think it's just the way that people speak. But to everybody else is very clear, like these VeggieTales, they were born <laughs> and raised in the U.S. Yeah. So you become Israel. Right. And, and this has been part of the problem is that throughout the history of the United States, implicitly, surreptitiously, sort of subconsciously, um, we uh, let's say I use that term broadly here. North Americans put ourselves in the shoes of the little guy, even though we're not the little guy. We're one of the most privileged people uh, in all of history. Um, so, you know, that that makes me wince at a sort of visceral level when I when I when I read the story. But um, do do I think they did a good I think it's not so much a question of like did they do a good job? It's it's more of a question of um, the spirit can work through various mediums. Um, to sort of bring about a wisdom and, and to re reflect on God and the things of God. And the spirit meets us where we are, you know? And so this story probably had a formative, positive effect in many ways. When I learned it, I'm sure when I taught it, I'm sure I taught it to 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds when I was an Awana teacher. Um, uh, but everything has limits and everything is, you know, it's finite and it takes place in, in this broken world that we live in. And so um, I, I would say the, the best thing it does is it in all the VeggieTales, it gets you into the biblical story. It gets you thinking. It gets you asking questions. Right. And I think then as teachers with the knowledge and the privileges that we've been given today to maybe think and say, hmm, we know now as we look back in history there has been these problematic ways of interpreting the text. So when, when our children ask questions that raise maybe some of these, because children are wise, right? They might raise some of these questions about, well, what about the Canaanites? We don't have to sort of be afraid, insecure, shut down the question or, or give um, bad answers like, well, they were just evil people. And so they had it coming, right? Uh, we can, and we can maybe enter into some of that complexity and say, well, maybe, God wants a home for everybody, you know, um, and you, you, so anyway, the the what you could do with it with a child with, with a child's question from there, you know, we could talk about that in myriad of ways. But I would say, the story and the way it's presented is not so grievous that we should just shut it down and cancel VeggieTales. Folks, <laughs> good questions. It gets us thinking about the story, and then it's up to us to sort of broaden and deepen what's going on, right? I love that. Yeah, our guest last week um, said something very similar of like, we shouldn't treat VeggieTales as the discipleship tool, but instead as kind of the first step into the teaching. And so like, to present it just on its own as sort of our full scope of teaching is maybe incomplete, but to center it, to, to, to use it as a starting point into some more complicated conversations um, can be a great thing. 
Right. And it, like we said, it was made in the 90s. And so this raises an important question, which is, it's been 20, 30 years. What alternatives do we have on the table now that do such a good job of creating catchy songs, of being accessible to children, but also in some ways having layers that even adults can enjoy and reach into? You know, maybe this is a call for, or maybe I just don't know. And there are other such resources out there. But I think at least until we do the hard work of, of coming up with some alternatives, we should be uh, careful about um, being critical of things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I don't think like since VeggieTales has like not as culturally relevant as it used to be for this new generation of kids. Um, I don't think any replacement has risen up to be like the VeggieTales alternative. Uh, and I think you make an excellent point that are we really going to write it off when there's nothing else that people can use that provides that same resource? So one of my questions for you, Alberto, is um, when thinking about how to teach kids, um, you know, these stories, what would be your advice or what are some of the questions that you are, you know, thinking through yourself and thinking about how to teach your kids um, that, you know, can can equip kids well in sort of the language and processing capacity they have to to work through some of these stories? Great question. I mean, the beauty of scripture is that it's a story and a story with many stories. And, and again, I'm engaging this now, not as a sort of biblical scholar with the higher critical stuff, but as, as a confessing Christian, um, I believe that the canon of scripture was also brought together by the spirit given to the people of God and, and children understand stories. And, and so do adults and for that matter, right? It's one of the key ways that we learn. And stories have this wonderful thing of giving us markers and symbols and motifs uh, that help us locate ourselves within that story but that transcend that we can see around us, right? So for instance, we talked about the promised land as a sort of key motif within that story, this key question that it raises about God promising a home to the people of Israel, um, people who had no home because they had been enslaved in Egypt, then they had journeyed in the, dress, in the desert and they had been sort of itinerant for 40 years, wandering, uh, longing for home. And so, um, there's other things too in the story, right? So there's the journey in the desert itself. Um, uh, and many people still today journey across deserts, across the Mediterranean, um, across difficult terrains. There's the question of the walls of Jericho that we talked about. So the story gives us so many rich motifs and symbols and questions. Um, and I think that's one way to, to think with our children. I think, have you thought about the promised land? Uh, what, what does home mean to you? Um, and what is the purpose and the meaning of home? And so, and now, you know, this is getting more into my field of <laughs> what I really love. Um, and I'll just say that um, I think um, scripture gives us uh, this, this paradox of home and a journey that uh, they're not necessarily opposed to each other. And I think that Christians have overemphasized journey to the deficit of thinking about the importance and the significance of home in, in the last few years, um, the last few decades, really. Um, Christians are pilgrims, we're on the way, our home is not here. But if you, if you look throughout scripture, um, in beginning with Genesis, humans are all also home-bound creatures, right? Uh, we are uh, Adama 
Adam and Adama, right? We can think about the, the play on words that scripture does in Genesis. Adama is the soil. Adam is the name of the first human. There's a, there's a binding there between the two. Um, and even in the, in the Latin word that we gives us our English human comes from humus, right? Which is not that tasty treat that we have, but uh, <laughs> also means soil and earth in Latin. And so I think it's important right now is a critical time actually not just for children, but for all of us to be thinking about what does home mean in the light of God's revelation, in light of what scripture is calling us to, because there are wicked ways of being at home in the world, ways of being at home in the world that seek to do so by building your home on top of other homes, by leaving others homeless, um, by conquering and colonizing, um, et cetera, et cetera. But that, and, and, you know, the, one of the big catchwords in the media today has to do with nationalism and is Christian nationalism. And what does it mean? What is our responsibility to the nation? And what about when our nation acts in morally corrupt ways? You know, are Christians a, nations onto, a nation onto themselves um, that are called to be set apart from all the earthly nations? So there are all these questions that have to do with how do we relate to the land? Um, how do we relate to places? Because they clearly deeply form us. You know, I, I, I can't hear this argument that Christians, they're not bound to places. This doesn't make sense to me. We're all, from our language, from the moment we're born, we are shaped by culture and place and where we dwell and those who dwell around us. So let's do this well. Anyway, so promised land and home and journey, you know, working kids, like, have, have your kids moved? Are, we're about to embark on this move across the United States. And it's a chance to think with our children about, you know, migrating and journeying and how other people in the world are going through this, but maybe not with the same privileges and how the Bible talks about that. And even Jesus himself and his family has to go to Egypt and then they have to come back. That's two journeys, not just one, right? The journey to Egypt, it's actually two. So Jesus, I'm guessing, experienced some pretty crazy third culture uh, or what they call, you know, um, when you come, you know, for us immigrants, when you have an accent, um, and everybody knows you have an accent and you're like, Jesus, like, I was born here in Israel. I was born in you know, Bethlehem. Uh, my mom is over here. She's, she was born in Nazareth. She's, but now he's probably got an accent because he spent so much time in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. So all these cool themes pop up in the story that we talk about with Jericho that pop up again in the New Testament that pop up in our lives about the importance of home and migrating and journey. So that's, I think, a great way to take the story and work it out with our, with our kids. I love this. So much of what we're trying to do with the Edible Theology Project kind of in this coming season, especially, is really helping people use food as a way of thinking about their relationship to home um, and and how sort of our food tells stories of movement, of displacement, but also connection to place. And almost like the further we've been disconnected from food, the more we've been disconnected from home and place because we don't really think about food being sort of tied to location. And so I just love that this sort of already fits with the conversations we're trying to, like the ways we're trying to help Christians think about home. Yeah, absolutely. And we live in a weird time and place because in some ways, and I think it's um, uh, Walter Brueggemann talks about this uh, already in the 1970s in a great book called It's a Land. He says, our culture is one of the most settled cultures in the world we have so much privilege we have so much turf right that that so much every uh, so many people are property owners and they feel secure in their homes now of course 
uh, Walter Brueggemann maybe could have done a little bit more with all the people who experienced uh, home insecurity and homeless here in the United States of America. But nevertheless, he's right, right? Like, and yet we are some of the most displaced people in, in history of humankind. And we have lost a sense of rootedness and a sense of belonging. And we're constantly feeling restless because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It feels like they're constantly looking for identity. They're constantly looking to figure out where they belong and what it means to belong. So it's this weird paradox we find ourselves in. Most settled society ever, and yet most displaced. And so, you know, how can we look to scripture to help us think of that? And certainly what you were raising about food is one key way to do that, can we? I wonder, I feel like this conversation is getting so long, but I just have so many thoughts. If almost the um, being able to be stable, like allows us to forget the need for that sort of connection and, and that stability connection to place that like forced sort of movement um, allows people to re- like be aware of that longing for home in a way that like actually better connects you um, to a sense of place and home and family than sort of the rootedness that we have been privileged to have um, allows Yeah, or allows us to forget really. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I think one of the things I like to, to talk about and think about is how Home is a noun, yes, it's a place, sometimes it's a memory, sometimes it's even a feeling or a sense of belonging. But I think most importantly, we should be talking about homing or home as a verb. Home is something that we're called to do every day to cultivate the land. And you know that might mean in a sort of plant a garden in your backyard, sure. Um, but even thinking back to Genesis, this idea of naming the animals, this relationship we have to every other living creature. Um, yeah, so I think, and, and it's it's every day. It's every day we practice home. And that, you know, we practice, you, let me put it this way, and this is where I'll finish this thought. Um, I think about often how all those commands to love your neighbor imply that you're at home somewhere, right? Huh. can't really love their, they have to have a home. You have to have a home to be neighbors. And so, but we take that for granted. Sometimes neighboring is part of the task of homing, of learning how to be at home somewhere and neighboring, not just our human neighbors, but as you were saying, Kendall also are other than human neighbors, the plants, the animals, the trees, even the sky and, and the water. Um, and, and I'll just say that there's a great deal we need to learn here from our, Uh, First Nation peoples all around us from our Native American brothers and sisters because they haven't forgotten that. And in fact, Mm -hmm. uh, they're quite insulted that from the time of the colonizers, nobody really asked them what it meant to be at home in this land. And then we started doing a bunch of ways of being at home in this land that actually render us homeless, even to this day, right? Our practices of food uh, uh, being one of those. Um, And I think they have a great deal to to still teach us, but uh, we're going to have to humble ourselves a little bit. Uh, all our technology for making and building and uh, home and food uh, may it not actually be as good for us in the long run um, as what some of those ancient ways uh, were for the Native American peoples. Oh man, you are blowing my mind in so many ways. I am so grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Um, I'm actually, I'm working on a book of essays about um, being a neighbor and formative experiences in neighborhoods. Um, And I have to say since becoming a parent, I feel most at home when I am sitting in my kitchen trying to do my freelance writing work, 
just being a revolving door, having neighbors running in and out, coming outside and seeing which neighborhood kids have made a mess and who I need to send home and who's staying for dinner. And just this idea of rootedness deepens with every passing day. And it really is such a privilege. So I'm, I love that that was your main takeaway from watching this episode of Veggie Tales because I wasn't thinking about it this way. And now it's all I can think about. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Thank you for sharing the story too about what you do in your freelance work. Yeah, I, I look up to that. I hope someday. I live in a second floor apartment, so my my door is not quite a revol- revolving door. Uh, but I hope someday I'll have a first floor door where our come in and out. Yeah, it was a long journey for us. We just moved here during the pandemic to the Hudson Valley from New York City, and it, it was a very long journey to get that first floor door. But I, when you. <laughs> when the first floor door gets here, you don't ever forget the days you didn't have it. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alberto, for being here with us. Um, it has been such a pleasure to have you on Veggie Takes. Such a pleasure. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had an awesome time. Hey, real quick before we rank this episode, if you're listening to Veggie Takes, chances are you might also be trying to figure out how to teach the Bible to your children in a fun and engaging way. I've got the perfect tool for you. Bake with the Bible is a six-week study on bread and the Gospels. Each week includes a scriptural lesson and a cultural historical lesson, plus a family-friendly recipe, activities for a range of ages and learning styles, and reading recommendations, too. Bake with the Bible is perfect for use around the breakfast table with your kids this summer. We've also got a self-guided version for teens and adults, complete with reflection prompts and journaling pages. The whole family will enjoy journeying through the Gospels through the lens of bread. Buy your copy today at www.edibletheology.com. And guess what? Veggie Takes listeners get 15% off any home version of Bake with the Bible when you use code VeggieTakes at checkout. Again, that's www.edibletheology.com. We'll link it for you in the show notes too. All right, Kate, how would you rank this episode? I'm going to give this episode 3.5 tomatoes. All it right. is mostly based on how hard I think they were trying to grapple with the difficult truths of the story and, you know, a whole half of a tomato for the Cebu song. What about you? I think I'm going to give it 3.7 tomatoes. Yes, tomatoes, not stars. I said that wrong last week. (laughs) Tomatoes, 3.7 tomatoes. Um, And the reason for that is, like you said, that they, I think, are grappling really well with, um, the with what's really a hard story and i think that they do that in an interesting and creative way um and they yeah flip it on its head in a way that like i don't think was really part of the dominant conversation in evangelicalism at that time you know i definitely didn't grow up hearing people sort of they're not quite challenging the story but they are sort of not leaning into some of the kind of nationalist tropes that they could. Um, And I really respect that. So that is, yeah, the 3.7. I don't, I don't even know. Did I say 3.8? I don't even remember. Um, You said 3.7, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I actually think the veggie tales, obviously this is not without problems, but in terms of being ahead of its time, in terms of being introspective, like this episode nailed it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to this episode of Veggie Takes. We just want you to remember, God thinks you're special and he loves you very much. 
See you next week. Veggie Takes is an unofficial podcast of the Edible Theology Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also enjoy Edible Theology's official podcast, Kitchen Meditations, 20-minute meditations to accompany you as you cook. Kitchen Meditations is available wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to everyone who made this podcast possible. My co-host, Kate Watson, our guest, Alberto La Rosa Rojas, and our wonderful worship CCN scholar, Adam Perez. Mm-hmm.